So where actually are you at the moment? Because I thought you were home, like in the UK. No, I'm not home in the UK yet. I have, I'm only halfway on my trip back around the world. I was recently in Hawaii, and I am now back in North Carolina. And at some uncertain point, I will be returning back to London. But because I fly standby, I don't exactly know when I'm leaving yet. Flying directly from Hawaii, which is one time zone away from being the furthest away a place can be from London before it starts getting closer. Like doing, doing a trip from that place directly back to London, I'm pretty sure my body would just give up and die. And so oh, yeah. even when I just fly to the West Coast, I usually try to plan it that I come to North Carolina, do a slight adjustment with time zones, go to the West Coast or go to Hawaii, spend some time there, and then come back to North Carolina to try to do some adjustment again before returning to London. So I, do, I, I have to break up the trips because jet lag is always just rough on me. So I am still jet lag now because I just got back from Hawaii a couple of days ago. And now this is the dreaded eastward journey in which wake up terribly late and feel awful every day and it's very hard anyway that's a long answer to the fact that i am in north carolina right now for some indeterminate amount of time i don't think i was aware of like hawaiian time or whatever the actual time zone is called yeah it's like uh hawaii alaska time time zone they're both on the same one i didn't know that it existed uh yeah and working us trying to to communicate <laughs> during that time period we had about half an hour a day where, where we could talk yeah. it's crazy it's 10 hours is madness yeah de- yeah depending on the time of year i think it's almost it's almost like 11 hours uh because again the the uk and the us don't line up their time zones perfectly so yes it is an awful time zone and that is why you seem to not believe me that we might have difficulty coordinating recording a show when i was in hawaii <laughs> like it's on the other side of the earth yeah it's not a convenient time zone no it feels like having fallen off the earth when you're in hawaii if you even just you go on the internet and twitter it's just like tumbleweeds are rolling by because nobody's awake when you're awake or you go on to reddit and All of the stories are very static. There isn't any motion of things going up and down because nobody's voting because it's just, you know, you and the Australians and everybody else is asleep. So it just, it it even feels really like you're not on the planet Earth when you're there. It's very far away from everything. So during the time period of our uh, interestingly scheduled shows recently, we now have stickers for Cortex available on the Relay FM store. Yes, we do. A lovely little square sticker of the uh, Cortex artwork. That you can buy mm-hmm. and i'll put a link in the show notes but the easiest way if you go to relay.fm slash store you'll see all of our shows there and you can you can buy some stickers and i have one stuck to my laptop and i'm very happy with it um and i, and I like to see that little brain when my computer is closed yeah it looks great if you want to stick cortex stickers all over everything you own uh, you now have the ability to do that as you should do so I obviously follow CGP Grey on Twitter. Oh, yeah? That is something something that I do. And, and whilst reading my, my tweets the other day, uh, I saw a, a, a pretty horrific event occur to you, which was your home screen organization. Oh. <laughs> yes, so Mike. So your favorite, Audible, uh, they changed the color of their icon to orange, which then basically incurred a too much orange on the home screen of your iphone okay okay yeah let's let's back up for a second because home screen organizing is a bit of a topic on the show it seems like people love it much to my surprise but yeah so so okay with ios 7 
there has always been this problem of too many white icons. And I already have my, my home screen has too many white con- icons on it. I forget exactly what it is. But everybody's like, ooh, white looks so cool. No, it doesn't. It's a terrible icon color. But lots of things have chosen it. But it just so happens that orange is disproportionately represented on my home screen as well in proportion to the number of icons that actually have that as a color. And I feel like my, my iPhone, the, the central most things on it are the, the ones that I used to have in the center of overcast and audible were right next to each other and they were orange and white and I tried to arrange everything else around those two in the middle so that it, it, it was like the colors were balanced nicely it didn't look random but it didn't look like there was too much of a pattern I spent as you can imagine a lot of time just from the way I'm describing this trying to get it to look yeah. this right yeah yeah it's and, and it's one of these funny things where it's a hard I have a hard time even knowing what I mean by looking right but pe- people think like oh stripes no I hate stripes or just you know little pa- checker patterns no that's awful it's it's very hard to get looking the way I feel is balanced because I don't even know exactly what I'm going for I just play around with it until it yeah. looks right but yeah so audible I saw something about how Audible changed the icon color, and I thought, oh, thank goodness, because they've almost certainly chosen the standard, like, Amazon yellow, maybe, or, you know, like, Audible has sometimes used red as design elements, but no, they chose orange, but the worst thing about the orange, Mike, is that they chose an orange which clashes somehow with every other shade of orange I have ever seen. (laughs) I think someone at Amazon must have thought, how can we make an orange that we are sure will look terrible next to every other shade of orange that has ever existed? And if you look at that Audible icon next to the Overcast icon, which Overcast has a really great, if you're going to go orange, right, you go a bright orange. But the Audible orange is like it was dragged through the mud and then not properly cleaned after it occurred. So it's it's not a great looking icon. But now it also, like, it looks extra awful next to a vivid orange. And so I swear to God, since this happened a couple days ago, I just keep moving things around on my phone. And I can find, I can find no acceptable configuration of all of these icons. And I've been trying to think, okay, can I take things off, off my home screen? Like, can I... Just I'm like like looking I'm like making aesthetic decisions about the colors of the icons. I'm like, okay, what can I do to try to put a buffer in here? But the big problem is I still want Audible and Overcast in the center. And it's like, no, this is now like two North Pole magnets. They can't be next to each other. They can't be diagonally next to each other. They need a buffer of one icon in between them somehow. And it's I'm gonna say it's been genuinely upsetting because I just I'm frustrated and I cannot find I cannot find a solution to this. So then you tweeted another picture, which was like maybe your current interim setup, which I quite like because if you look at both pictures side by side, and I'll include the tweets in the show notes so people can see mm-hmm. them. Audible and Overcast used to be together, sitting next to each mm-hmm. other. Now it's yeah. like they've they've had a bad breakup because they are now both <laughs> on opposite ends. <laughs> Only music, like music and maps, are like their buddies, and they have to stay in the middle, like to keep them apart. Yeah, but the problem with that, okay, so I put music and maps between Audible and Overcast, but I used to have such a nice, pleasing three audio things in a row, and yeah. now maps feels like, it just, it doesn't belong there. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 disharmonious with that row. And also, even even looking at this, I just pulled it up on my screen, and just, I look at it, and this this is just awful. Like I said, it's an unbalanced disaster. You also you have two diagonal orange icons next to each other, which sort of forms a pattern, but the pattern is asymmetric. It's just there's there's no good solution. I think what I have to do is try to figure out icons to remove or replace on this screen. It's just 
I'm yeah, I'm very displeased because I, I've I've come to the conclusion that there is no good way to arrange all these icons. So I'm not I'm not happy. I like Audible, don't like their icon. So I may have a a, a potential solution for you. Uh, that oh, yeah. came from uh, listener Stephen. Mm-hmm. And do you remember we were talking a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a few weeks ago now, about how we would both like to have audiobooks in Overcast for smart speed? Yes. Well, yes. Stephen has created a workflow with the workflow app that we both use on iOS mm-hmm. where it can take audio files from your Dropbox account so you could save audiobooks into a folder at Dropbox mm-hmm. and it can then take that file and add it to the service HuffDuffer, which is kind of like Instapaper for audio. Hmm. So then it would add this audiobook into your HuffDuffer feed, which you could subscribe to in Overcast and listen to them that way. Hmm. So it's a solution. I I will definitely try this. The only thing I don't like about HuffDuffer, and the reason I've never really used it, is because is is it still this way that it's all public? You can't have like a private HuffDuffer account. I feel like it might be public. Let me. I I was just thinking it because I was like, if you're putting audiobooks, it could kind of be. It's like shady, you know, like because it's like ah uh, now. Doesn't HuffDuffer end up creating a public directory that you can search of of everything that people put on there? And yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it uh, <laughs> under a fake name <laughs> subscribe to. Well, because you know what you could do. Like one way that you could do it is you could. Put it in, so you can put it in the feed, download them to your uh, into your app, into Overcast, and then delete them from your HuffDuffer account. Ah, that's too much work. Well, it's, it's just a solution. Or you could just leave them there, because whatever. <laughs> <laughs> because Amazon made me do it with their icon, that's why. Exactly. That would hold up in court. Yeah, I'm sure it would. But your honor, look at the shade of orange. I had to commit. <laughs> Objection. <laughs> yeah. I had to be committing copyright distribution felonies because this orange is just so ugly. I object to that orange. Yeah, it's... I, I will definitely look into this. Uh, this is interesting. I've often wondered if there's a way to create like a, like an RSS feed from a, a folder of Dropbox MP3s. Like there are various reasons why I've, I've wanted to do that. But for the time being, I'm definitely going to give this workflow by Stephen a try and see if it see if it works for me and if I can try to hide those audiobook files on HuffDuffer. But if that works, if that works, I already know what I'll do. I, that will allow me to get rid of the Audible icon on that homepage and I will replace it with the settings screen, which is my or the settings icon, which is my next most frequent used thing, which is not out of a folder. So that's that's what will happen. Settings will go on there, and at least settings is gray, so I can put it almost anywhere. Oh, I'm liking this. If I can get rid of that audible icon and still get audiobooks from Audible, I'll be very happy. Nice work, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, Junie Girl on Reddit was she asked a question that I meant to ask you. Uh, mm. about how many duplicate sets of recording gear you have around the world because you're currently talking to me from North Carolina from mm-hmm. equipment that was already in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, people I don't know why people find this interesting but yeah, of course I have a I have a microphone here that I leave here. This seems unremarkable to me. Why? Like cuz the the thing that I have in front of me is the the I'm still using the Blue Yeti microphone USB microphone very convenient, mm-hmm. and I have a a big metal arm for it and a clamp for the desk, and uh, a couple a bunch of equipment underneath the desk so that I can connect it to my laptop. 
why on earth would I pack all of this in a suitcase and, and move it all over the place? Yeah, but this, but this is added on to the fact that you have this stuff at home and in your co-working space. Right, but the question there again is, why would I pack it into a suitcase and move it from my home to my office? It's, I, it's a huge, it's a huge hassle. It's I don't think anybody hassle. disagrees with like the fact that it's there, like it's great. But I just mm-hmm. don't think many people do this, like mm-hmm. buy like multiple things and stash them in different places it kind of reminds me a little bit of batman like Mm -hmm. when i used to watch the old batman show i like this comparison keep going yes do you remember the adam west show i don't know how much you like yeah i saw some of the adam west when i was a kid there was always like a scenario that he would find whatever he needed wherever he was there was always like another bat cave or like there was a bush which well, it wasn't a real bush, but it had a motorcycle underneath, like the bat right. cycle. Or like he would need the bat boat and it would just be under the dock. Like it was always just there. And this is what yeah. this reminds me of. That's exactly the way. If I was Batman, I would do the same thing. You would hide bat stuff everywhere that you possibly could so that you always have it available. You never know when you're going to need another batarang. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> you can't argue with that, Mike. <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the things I, I just to point out that... I, uh, I think makes this scenario a little bit different is I have a business and this is business equipment. So like what we're doing right now, we're doing business at this very moment, Mike. And so I can have these as business expenses. And it always seems to me like a no brainer. If there's anything that can make the business easier, I will do that as a business expense just without thinking about it. But of course, no normal person is going to have redundant equipment for recording podcasts at their office and at their home and at their parents' home. But it is it is a different scenario when you do make a living partially, at least making podcasts. So that's why I'm very comfortable having this stuff everywhere so that I can I can do it at any time. And one of the big reasons that we didn't record it in Hawaii, in addition to the fact that the time zones were terrible, is I kept looking at this microphone and thinking, there's no way I'm going to pack that in my suitcase and bring it with me. <laughs> no way. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I have enough space for everything perfectly. This does not fit. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Even if I even if I had plenty of spare space, you know what I like better than bringing a microphone with me? A lighter suitcase. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Warby Parker. Look, glasses that you wear on your lovely face should not cost as much as an iPhone, but far too often they do. And this is where Warby Parker is here to help you out. Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at just $95, and that includes prescription lenses. And these aren't just ugly, cheap-looking designs at these prices either. Warby Parker believes that glasses should be viewed as a fashion accessory, just like a bag, a shoe, a necktie, a hat, or even that fancy smartwatch that you wear. They want you to look good in your glasses, and Warby Parker achieve just that. Their designs are super great-looking, and if you're looking to wear something on your face all day, then they should look good on your face. It's simple. You know, you're going to wear it all the time. You're going to be out in the world. You want glasses that are going to look great. As well as those fantastic frames that start at $95, they also have a titanium collection that starts at $145 that also include prescription lenses, of course. These feature premium Japanese titanium and French non-rocking screws. I didn't know what they were, and I googled them, and it looked really fancy. Non-rocking screws, everybody. That's the future. But all of Warby's glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating 
booking. There is no additional cost for this. And all the glasses include a hard case and cleaning cloth too. There is no additional items you're going to need to purchase. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a deal this good anywhere else. But the best part about Warby Parker, the best part of their whole experience, is what they call the home try-on. This makes buying glasses online totally risk-free and super easy. You just go to Warby Parker, you sign up, and you go to their home try-on program. This allows you to order five pairs of glasses that will be shipped to you directly. They send you five frames. You can try them on in the comfort of your own home for five days where you can get feedback from friends and family and colleagues and they can tell you which ones they like. Then once you choose the ones you want, you send them back. This is all for free, of course, using the prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. So you just get a bunch of frames. You choose the ones that you want. You send them all back to Orbit Parker. And then once you're happy, you place your order and they will get started on putting those lovely prescription lenses into the frames of your choice and you will have them back in your hands within 10 business days and they usually arrive a lot faster than that this is something super cool they have such a great experience their frames look so good as i said and that home try on really is something that's awesome you're not just trying them on for a couple of minutes and looking in a mirror and an optometrist you actually get to try them on and show friends and family members and get all of their opinions as well so go to warwickparker.com cortex to choose your five free home try on frames once you're happy with what you've decided send the frames back choose your favorite pair and order by visiting that url you will also get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and with free shipping all around. And also, you'll be contributing to a charitable cause as for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Thank you so much to Warby Parker for supporting this show. Go to warbyparker.com slash cortex. You have uh, made a, another impact on my life that I'm not sure how comfortable I am with. Oh yeah, what have I done? Prison architect. Oh, Prison Architect. You're playing that? I have started playing Prison Architect, yes. I didn't think you're much of a PC gamer guy. I thought no. you have like a thousand consoles connected to your TV. I do, but this one wasn't uh, available for any of them. However, it is coming to the iPad in mm-hmm. October, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about because whenever I play Prison Architect on my MacBook Pro, my MacBook Pro sets on fire. <laughs> just, just immediately it just catches on fire it's, it's really difficult but listeners again prison architect is a game where you are simulating constructing a prison and i love these kind of simulation work games but one of the things i'm always aware of with them that you know, as as technology has progressed many of these simulation games don't have the most amazing graphics but your computer will still run incredibly hot because it's trying to simulate the needs of a thousand prisoners running around and how much food each, each and every one of them wants. So I always find it interesting that some of these games that are very simple graphically are still hugely demanding on the processor because of how many individual little elements they are simulating. So yes, it may look simple, but you're still going to need a pretty good computer to run some of these things. So... I found the game very hard to get to grips with. It is not good at explaining what you need to do, like, in Mm -hmm. any way. Like, the tutorial is kind of pointless, and I failed horribly my first two times. Yeah, that's part of the game, is failing horribly right from the beginning. Did your prison burn down? Did you have a riot? I had a riot, yeah, but that wasn't on that one. So Mm -hmm. I basically was very stuck with the first two and decided that my favorite thing about this game is just the building of the prison. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I like to do. I like to build the prison. So I enabled unlimited money, which I'm sure probably upsets you. It does upset me. Uh, because I like to just uh, just start building a prison and iterate the design. However, I was really uh, invested in building this prison 
and wasn't paying attention to the amount of prisoners that were being delivered to my prison every day. And then I got into the situation where I had 60 cells and 90 prisoners. And then there was a terrible riot, which I couldn't stop. Right, which was entirely your fault. 100% my fault. So now my current (laughs) prison, which I've just started building, uh, I have unlimited money, naturally, Mm -hmm. and I have turned off failure... (laughs) So, <laughs> I like that. You've turned off the game part of this. The part of the game where you can fail yep. is now no longer active. All I want to do is just build a really beautiful prison. Right. That's that is that is how I approach this game. I just want to build a prison which is really nicely designed and everything works really well and just it just functions good. Because when I'm playing these games i'm doing similar tasks to you like editing shows and stuff like that mm-hmm. so i want to have like the least amount of distraction so basically it's just a case of me drawing like a hundred cells like you know like two blocks and then by three blocks two blocks by three blocks and just making all these individual prison cells and i like doing all of that part i hope to god you know about the clone stamping tool you do know that right i have no idea what you're talking about Oh, God, Mike, it's like you're not even playing the same game. Well, they, they don't do anything to tell you about anything. <laughs> okay, just just to save you and any of the dear listeners out there who try Prison Architect, which, again, I highly recommend. I think it is a very well-designed game. One of the things you can research is a little blueprint so that you can draw a rectangle around a section of your prison that you wish to duplicate exactly somewhere else. Oh, okay. So this allows you to stamp down rows and rows of, of blocks of cells that each have 12 prisoners in them or whatever. That would have really helped me when I was having that riot. That would have mm. saved you thousands of clicks probably from the way it sounds. The problem was I realized I had 90 prisoners and then started to immediately build another wing of prison cells. It would have taken you forever. Whilst I was building them, everybody died. Right, yes. So that would have helped. But I I don't know if I would use it because I I actually just like the mind like the mindless process of just building these things. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's a fun game. I, but the, for me, it's just, I just want to build stuff. That's that's yes. what I like doing. The rest of the game, I'm not, so, oh, I'm not so interested in yet. Maybe once I build the perfect prison, I will mm-hmm. then pay attention to everything else. Yes, maybe. Stop me if I've made this comparison before, but my, my wife always describes some of the ways that I play the games as the the man version of knitting. That the, the way she looks at it is, I, I, like, I want something to keep my hands busy you know, while you're sort of doing something else. And I, and I think that that is 100% on board. And the way you are playing Prison Architect, where you're like, ooh, I enjoy drawing the exact same identical cell over and over and over again, is like, man, that sounds even more like knitting than what I do. This is crazy. I was talking to Tiffany Arment yesterday, mm-hmm. who you also have infected a prison architect. Yes, who I also have seen has caused riots that killed thousands of prisoners, yes. <laughs> and she said to me, you should take up knitting. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I think there, I think there's something to this comparison. I really do. Maybe they should, somebody should make a knitting game for Steam, and then we can yeah. play that. <laughs> yeah. Let's see that. If there's knitting simulator, <laughs> there's got to be. There has to yeah. be. Okay, there has to be a knitting simulator. Uh, yep, there is a there is a knitting game. <laughs> <laughs> really, there really is. That's amazing. Yeah, but it's uh, somebody has created it, and it has you have knitting needles that are connected to mm. your computer, <laughs> so you sit and do the action, and it knits on. The <laughs> that's amazing that is what, fantastic what a world we live in mike knitting simulators it is a world just while we're talking video games i'll mention one other thing i was telling my parents a little bit about the video game world 
when I'm here because this is something that is just outside of their experience. And so we were having a bunch of conversations. But I was trying to convince them that Euro Truck Simulator was a real thing. That Do you know Euro Truck Simulator? I have seen it and heard of it. I've never played it. The, yeah, the basic gist of Euro Truck Simulator is it is an exact simulation of long-haul trucking in that the whole game is you driving a truck across the continent of Europe delivering items. And But when I say most people who've played video games are imagining like, oh, it's some top-down view and you know, you're avoiding obstacles. No, no, no. It's really a simulation of a road. It's like a flight simulator except it's a truck on the road and you're just driving. And my parents were like, oh, no, that can't possibly be real. Nobody, nobody would do that. Nobody would sign up for virtual work in this way that isn't even remotely a game. It can't possibly be real. I showed them a, a Let's Play on YouTube of someone just silently driving the truck across Europe. And within 60 seconds, they were sold. They go, ooh, I could play that. That looks really, in- that looks really enjoyable. I-, I wouldn't mind taking a drive across Europe. I just think gaming is a, it's a very funny thing in, in what captures what person's mind it's just it's, it's all about like how your brain is built and what kind of things you react to so i imagine there's someone out there who has just heard about the knitting simulator who is very excited even though i could not imagine playing that game i'm now watching a truck on youtube driving through a forest look at that what a, what a world <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we we live in we live in so much luxury that we can simulate work as enjoyment i want to talk to you about about script writing a little bit today Oh, now we're getting serious. This is your topic for today, script yeah, writing? script writing. Okay. All of your videos, they are scripted, right? Mm-hmm. Completely scripted. That is correct. Because obviously this is a decision you had to make, right? I'm going to make these videos and then I'm going to make scripts and I'm going to read the mm-hmm. scripts. That's mm-hmm. the audio. Did you always know, like, the only way I can do this is if I script the videos? In in some ways, the, the videos are an outgrowth of a lot of the time that I spent teaching because... What I would do as a teacher was to create much more detailed PowerPoint presentations than most teachers would make so that I could have an outline of the lesson that I was going through. And these presentations took a lot of time to make, but it was great because they were reusable. Because every time I saw a teacher on my teacher training course writing something by hand on the board, I thought, oh, what a waste of human effort. You're going to have to be writing that same sentence, you know, twice a day, twice a week, every week for the rest of your teaching life. I'm not going to do that. It's just awful. So that's why I I tended to make everything as PowerPoint presentations. And what I would do is uh, I would go into empty classrooms somewhere in the school and walk through in real time what a lesson was going to be like. So I think, okay, so here, here's the introduction. Here's the part where I'm talking. The, the slide, some slide would come up and it would be my marker of, okay, here, you know, worksheets go out here or everybody takes notes here or this is where the experiment starts. But everything was kind of directed by the slideshow as a marker to me, almost like I'm doing a presentation, except it's, a, it's an unusual presentation because there are breaks when the students are doing things. But it was a very reusable but very practiced thing. Man, I really hope that some that somebody saw you through a window once and you're just like <laughs> talking to no one. <laughs> I know I know people saw me through the window. The other teachers thought that I was crazy for doing this. <laughs> but my my perspective has always been I am very happy to do 
what seems like a ridiculous amount of work up front if it's going to save me work on the back end. Yep. And I, I think that trade-off is almost always worth it. Okay. And this was a case where in my later years as a teacher, these presentations were great because almost the only preparation I had to do for any lesson was which PowerPoint file is it going to be? This one? Okay, great. And in that folder, if there was anything that needed to be printed out, those printouts were just in the folder with the presentation. And that was all I needed to just go. Hmm. I wouldn't even have to you know, review the lesson ahead of time because the presentation was designed with speaker notes and other things to like prompt me about everything that I need to have on my mind when I'm going through this. And okay. one of the things as well is I often had points in my notes for fake diversions. Ugh. So the students would think that I was getting off track with some kind of story about whatever, but it was all planned. I, I never got off track unless I wanted to get off track, but the students would always think that I was getting off track. But you, you'd, I'd start to stumble over something and pretend like, oh, let me, uh, oh, this thing, there was also this thing, but uh, you know what, I'm not sure we have time for that. But then the students would be like, no, what is it? And I, I was like, uh, uh, okay, well, let me, looking at the clock, like pretending like I don't know how much time we have left, but I know exactly how much time we have left. Like, uh, is there time to do it? Okay, let me quickly tell you this thing. But the whole point of like the diversion was because I had learned like, oh, this part of the lesson is too long. Like the kids need a break at this point. And a pretend diversion feels very much like a break. And then we come back to the real lesson. It's like, okay, we got to get serious now because we've lost some time. But we haven't lost any time. Like, I knew about that ahead of time. So this is what I mean. Like, even the lessons that I gave were very well prepared. They weren't scripted. I didn't do things word for word because that's horrifically boring. But I knew, like, what are the beats of this lesson and how exactly do I want it to go? So I guess when you started to do this, there was no way you were going to do it other than like being completely prepared for everything you were going to say. Yes, that, that's exactly right. So if you watch that first, the very first video that I did, that video was totally prepared in the same way that I would prepare a lesson in that I made that almost entirely in Keynote, uh, Apple's version of PowerPoint. Not writing a script with it, but thinking about it as, okay, I want to go through this thing and what what point do I want to sort of change the topic? When am I going to talk about things quickly? When am I not going to talk about things quickly? And that first presentation was extraordinarily presentation-like in that I would just rehearse it over and over again and I didn't have as many written notes. It wasn't completely memorized because some of the sections like the, uh, the countries, you couldn't possibly memorize those things. And as time went on, I added like more and more and more of an actual script around that. But I made that one like a presentation first. And so that one, and I think the first two voting videos I know were done in the same way. And that way of making a presentation in, or making a video in some ways I think is better, but it's way too time consuming once I've transitioned to doing this for a living now if i still made videos the way i made the first one it would take months for each of them because the first one took months to do is that because you're practicing them is that the problem is that why it takes so much longer yeah it's like i'm practicing giving a presentation on a stage in front of a group of people right and when i'm talking it out loud you realize oh this part's a little boring 
And what I'm doing then is because I wasn't working with a script, I'm working with slides in Keynote. I would be rearranging slides in Keynotes, but also basically it was an animation first way of making a video. Start with the animations and I'm like rearranging things and seeing how it's going to look on the screen and figuring out how the words go together at the same time. I do think that's a better way to make a presentation because you can sometimes have really great overlaps of like, oh, I want exactly this on the screen while I'm saying these words, but it's just too time consuming. So as I made more and more videos, I eventually learned that one way to speed up production and still maintain high quality is to do it all script first because it's much faster to change things in words when I'm not moving around slides or trying to change drawings or realizing that some drawing isn't going to work and I've just wasted a huge amount of time. So I lock down the words now first and then the animations come later. Oh, okay. but, I, but I kind of did it reverse when I started, or I should say it's not exactly reverse, but I did it more together of like looking yeah. at the animations as I'm thinking through what I'm going to do. But it's just too time consuming to do that. Yeah, no, that seems like run. the wrong way to do it now. Like to, oh, yeah. to have everything ready and then speak over it. Like yeah. that that is much harder to do on a more frequent basis, I think. Yeah. It's much harder to do. Especially to to maintain like clarity and quality. Exactly. If you're doing presentations like like I was making for school, my lessons were very time consuming to create. But it's still less, like it took less time to make a lesson than it did to make a video. Because again, it doesn't, like the the exact thing that you say in front of a group of people doesn't matter. And you can yep. always clarify, like it's a very different experience. Exactly. Uh, but so that's that's what I was doing in the beginning. Okay. But, yeah, I'm v- very glad to have transitioned to script making now first as the words get locked down. And then the animations, like I don't even really start on animations almost ever until the script is 90% done. So I want to talk about like how they get put together, like how you write them. So mm-hmm. I assume that after you decide on an idea, the next part will be research. I assume that's the first part, right? Mm, okay, no, it's actually kind of backwards. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't understand. The very, very beginning of videos now is I have a lot of things that I, I feel are topics that I am interested in. And maybe some days these will become a video, maybe they won't. But there are topics that catch my attention. And I spend a lot of time acting as a kind of collector for a topic. And I think, oh, hmm, this is an interesting piece of information. And at the moment I'm using Evernote, which I have incredibly mixed feelings about. But Evernote is is my tool where I have about 200 plus folders, each one that acts as as a collecting point for a particular topic of interest. So if I'm reading something in a book or I come across an article or I hear something on a podcast, I have all of these buckets that I can just dump this thing into. And I say, oh, this is related to this topic of interest and I'm going to throw it in there. So it's, it's actually... I end up kind of selecting from these collections when I'm thinking about making a video. Uh, but I, but the collection for me is really the starting point that I don't know why, but for some reason, some topic is of interest to me and I end up starting collecting things over a long period of time that are related to that topic. 
So when I'm working on an individual video, you can see that that's downstream of this process. I often look through what are my collections and I'm, I'm like promoting something from the stage of a collection to being something that is much more actively worked on as opposed to passively uh, collecting information that I'm throwing into it. Does that make sense? Does that make any sense what I've just said? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's like base research, right? It's just mm -hmm. it's just collection of materials, but I assume you then after that period go into heavy research, right? Yeah, so... Let, let me come back to the research thing in a second because I just want okay. to take a sidebar on Evernote. Yep, it's Evernote sidebar, go ahead. Yeah, that that little sigh that you've just made, that's like my feeling about Evernote too. It's like, <sighs> they haven't, I don't really feel like that they've advanced the product in any meaningful way in like five years. Every addition Evernote seems to make is like for a user that's not me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I've often thought Evernote is a difficult program to make anyway. For, yeah. for the listeners who are unaware, Evernote, its express purpose is, I always, I always describe it as to be, a very organized pile of junk. So yes. you can throw anything at it. It's fundamentally collecting like a whole bunch of just unrelated junk, but still trying to give you a very good way of shift, uh, sifting through that yep. when you need to. They have good search tools and, and they use OCR to yeah. read words and images and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, they do a lot of clever stuff to try to help make you able to find stuff when you need to, which is one reason that I use it. But I always think there are a few programs that are very high on this. I use them, but I don't like them spectrum. And Evernote is, is one of these programs for me that I use it a lot, but I sure don't like it. And I'm yep. always scanning the horizon for some kind of alternative. I've never found anything that comes close because I don't I don't use Evernote as much as I used to anymore because mm -hmm. uh, I tend to keep a lot of my things like this now in just plain text mm -hmm. right because as well Evernote is like basically impossible to get your stuff out of it's yeah, really that's, hard yeah no matter how much Evernote tells you oh you can export stuff it's like no you can export stuff in Evernote's custom XML format which is also just impossible to deal with like yeah export in gigantic quotation marks is you know it's I don't like that there's a there's a lock in there. Yep. If I could do everything in just plain text, I would, and I used to. But as time has gone on, I want to be able to throw more things like MP3s and infographics and all kinds of stuff in there. So I need to be able to have many, many different media. Before we get lots of feedback, I have investigated all of the main players in this field. I was looking very hopefully at Microsoft OneNote, but, but that's also terrible for a bunch of reasons. So... I'm aware of all the big players in this field, and I use Evernote because it does solve my problem the best. When I take a, a collection and I say, okay, I'm going to be more actively working on this particular topic, one of the things I do is try to pull out from Evernote and just go through all of that and say, okay, what of this is actually useful to me now? What am I actually going to need for the project that I'm working on? And go through all of that and like take out just the actionable stuff that I actually want. So I feel like my whole goal is to touch Evernote directly as little as possible. I, I'm sending things to it. And then when I need them, I'm removing them from Evernote. But it is very rarely actually open on my screen except for this brief phase where it's like, okay, I'm going to extract from you what I need and put it in a text file that is going to be, uh, eventually become my script. Like that's, that's the way that I use it. 
I, I love Evernote for, for traveling stuff. So I put all my travel documents and things in there, but that's pretty much the only thing I use it for now. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just not confident to put a lot of really important things in there anymore. Yeah, but yeah. for you, that system, I can't think of anything else that would that would be better. So the, with the way that you're collecting, Evernote is the way to do it. Because as yeah. well, one of the other great things, I think probably the best thing about Evernote is it's everywhere. Yes, yes. That's one of the things I really like. If Evernote went away today, I would probably do my best to recreate as much of this as I could using folders and Dropbox. Uh, I wouldn't go to one of the other alternatives, but yeah, it's... I do use Evernote, but reluctantly is the bottom line. Sorry, Evernote CEO, who's brand new. This episode of Cortex is brought to you once again by Harvest. If you're a freelancer or part of a team and you have client work, you know just how tricky and annoying it can be to both track your time and send out the invoices that you need so you can get paid. Well, this is where Harvest can help you. Harvest lets you track exactly how much time you're spending on your projects, and you can do this from the web, from your phone, your computer, or even your watch. Harvest's great time tracking is available for you no matter where you get your work done or no matter where it pops into your mind that you need to be tracking that time or sending that invoice. This makes sure that you'll never lose track of anything. You want that time to be logged. You want that money to be counted and you want all those invoices to be sent and this is what Harvest will help you with. When it comes time to bill your clients, Harvest lets you take those tracked hours and easily create and send beautiful invoices. They can be customized with your own company logo to make sure that everything both looks and feels super professional. Once you send that invoice out, you also want to be paid as quickly as possible. You want to make it as easy as you can for people to pay you immediately. And Harvest helps make that happen as it integrates with PayPal and Stripe so you can accept online payments on those invoices to help you get paid faster. They also feature multi-currency support in case you're billing overseas. That's really helpful for me. And also automated invoices in case you need to just be sending the same thing over and over every week, every month, every year. Harvest have really built a full package for people that need to track time and get paid. They do this with great looking apps that are a pleasure to use by giving you the powerful reporting tools that you need to keep up to date with what's going on in your business and also by helping you go paperless with great expenses tracking. I'm super impressed with what Harvest offers. It really is a full package. And if you're the type of person that needs this kind of thing, I am sure that they're going to make you happy. To get started with Harvest, go to getharvest.com, getharvest.com, and create an account. The first month is free, but you can save 50% off the next month by entering the coupon code Cortex at checkout. Don't forget that. Thank you so much to Harvest for their support of this show. Let's get back to the, the, the research part. Mm-hmm. So I assume that once a topic has been lifted out of Evernote and like right. to be advanced, yes. I assume you, that you then, when you start thinking about writing the script, you have to start more detailed research. Yeah, so there's a there's an intermediate stage we can kind of skip here where things are what, what are called a zeroth draft. Um, we'll skip that for the moment. We'll talk about videos that I'm actively working on, of which there are usually two or three that I think of, I'm actively working on these things. And yes, at that stage, I do set aside dedicated time to take all of this stuff that I've gotten that I've been collecting over maybe possibly years, because I think my oldest notebook goes back to 2011 for a topic that I want to do that I've been collecting stuff on. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that, Whoa. that 2011 topic is one, is one of these topics where the more I research about it, I feel like the less I know, which is why that topic has been 
for so long. Yeah, that, that's a topic that the more I research, I feel like the less I know. But anyway, when I have, I have just all of this like random stuff that has collected over the years, but very often there are lots of holes in that collection because I haven't been actively trying to look through whatever the topic is. Mm-hmm. So I do set aside dedicated time to research the topic as, as fully as is reasonable. And it's a, bit, it's a bit hard to describe this process because it feels very... Like, people always ask, how do you know what sources to trust or what do you think is reliable? And it's... The only thing I can honestly say is I feel like I've developed a sense of this over time about, like, like where do you want to stop with trying to verify if something is true? Or I'll give an example of um, one of the things that happens when you're looking at a big collection of articles and, and book segments and maybe podcasts on a topic is I sometimes come across little stories that in my mind I always think of as too cute, right, or too perfect. That whatever a topic is, there's some very commonly told story about it that just like it fits the narrative like a little bit too well or the story is just a little bit too perfect about maybe an historical incident or, or about how something works. I feel like my brain has developed these red flags for these stories that are repeated over and over again, but just can't, they just don't sound right to me. It doesn't mean that they can't be true, but it, they just don't sound right. Uh, and the, the classic example I, I normally use is the the naming of Uranus, the planet. There's like this story about how it was originally called King George that was repeated enormously in many different places but it was just like too cute of a story. And that's why I ended up researching that one and trying to find out, like, was this, is there any documented evidence of Uranus ever being called King George? And the answer is not really. Like, no, there's this related thing about it being called the the Yorgum Situs, which kind of means King George in Latin, maybe. I don't know. But like the King George story was just too cute. And so I felt like I wanted to research it. Um, but but I, I can't describe like a an algorithm for this this part of the script I feel like is really solid and this part isn't. I try to verify everything, but you always have to stop somewhere. You know, where where do you want to stop with with research? And that I don't have a good answer to. How do I know precisely when to stop? By this point, do you have like a trusted sources, like people and or places that you go for your research? Yeah, one of the things I try to do now uh, that I've gotten a little bit better about doing is when a script is about 80% done, I try very hard to reach out to domain experts to have them review it before the script goes any further. It is one of the most satisfying parts of my work is to send off a script to someone who is an expert in the field asking for their input. And they come back saying that there that there aren't any major errors. Like that is always hugely satisfying when I feel like, okay, that like that is a good indication that my system, even though it's a bit vague about research, is up to task. That an expert in an area will agree with me that there are no major errors in the script. What usually comes back is, and this is where judgment calls always come into place, is some question about detail or simplification or uh, like I've jumped over some step 
And I always feel like that that's a judgment call that that has to be made about length of video versus detail of video. Yeah, that's that's a narrator's decision, basically. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't always follow all of the feedback that comes back from the domain experts when I feel like we have a disagreement over the way the narration is going to go. Right. And and that that's always the biggest complaint is people say, oh, you left out this detail. And again, it's like, yes, I left out the part where the universe was created up until this point. Like, you can't talk about everything. But it is very, very rare. That's your job, right? That is your <laughs> domain. Like, the, the yes. understanding of the narrative and telling the story. Yeah, yeah. But so I'm, I'm just very pleased that it is, it is quite rare that they'll come back and say, you know, this is just a straight-up error or, or this didn't happen in this way. But I feel a lot better when I can have a domain expert review the script before I move any, any further along with it. Now... The thing, the thing with the writing is, a lot of people say they go, "Why don't you approach the expert first and save yourself a lot of trouble with the research?" Hmm. Which, which seems like a really reasonable question that I get asked a lot. And my reply is that I have found that being confused and frustrated about a topic is a fundamental part of writing about that topic that you sometimes don't know what parts are going to trip you up if someone just explains it to you right from the start. So I often make notes when I'm writing about which part of this am I having trouble understanding. And those things are really valuable because in the very final drafts, I often feel like, oh, I completely understand this topic. But I make sure to look at the notes of what past me was confused about and try to think, Okay, how can current me write this in a way so that the first time someone sees it, it makes more sense or okay. it, it anticipates the questions or the problems that I had at particular points. So that's why I, I go to the experts at the end rather than at the beginning. Because if they just explain it to you in their way and then you just take it as read, you might not be able to then explain it in a coherent way for people watching the videos. Yeah, or what can just happen is that somebody else's way of explaining it gets in your mind and it seems like it's the only or best way to explain something. Okay. Right? This is one of the reasons why I, I try to avoid other people's videos on topics that I want to cover. Yes. Because, it, because a really good analogy that someone makes will lodge in your brain and it will prevent you from creating your own different analogy. Yeah, uh, I, I call that brain pollution. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Because I, I used to a lot more than I do now, like interview people about their work and their projects, mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of like a little bit about what we do here, basically. And I did right. actually go through uh, one of these scenarios recently where uh, I wanted to talk to you. about I can't remember what it was to talk to you about something that I believed you were going to bring up on Hello Internet. So I didn't listen to that topic until right. afterwards. Right. Um, because if I hear maybe Brady ask you a question or you explain something in a certain way, then it will pollute the way that I would ask that question. And I, and I don't like to do that because even if I ask you the same question, um, I might come to a different sub-question or conclusion. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just like to trust my own opinion in that rather than having it like spoiled by any other scenario. And I used to do this when I used to interview people weekly. So this is for Inquisitive back in the day, right? 
Exactly. So mm-hmm. some people would be doing things, and so they would be in, on a bunch of podcasts talking about a big thing that they were doing. Right. People are making the rounds. Exactly. Like you know the old like like on late night TV or something. Right. Uh, so I would never listen to those until I was done with with my questioning. So because yeah. it just made the most sense to me. Um, you mentioned about working on a couple of scripts at one time. Mm-hmm. How do you keep them like? separate in your brain so they don't cross over like how do you and how do you decide which ones to put your time into a certain period uh i don't feel like i have any problems with cross-pollination or confusion or overlap it just it seems very natural that i can keep them separate i don't feel like there's a collision if i'm working on two scripts at once and i actually find that it is the exact opposite that when i'm writing i almost always will be working on more than one script in a day that I'll, I'll work on, mm. I'll go through one draft of a script and then I'll take a little break. Like I'm out in London, this is where I'll get up, I'll go for a walk for 20 minutes and, and switch to a different location. And then when I get to another place, I'll sit down and then I I won't be able to work on the thing that I've just worked on. It's much easier to then switch to maybe, you know, what's going to be the second video in the future and, and work on a draft through that. I have done this since... I was a kid in school that I I was always aware of there's some limit of how much I can work on, say, you know, like a dumb essay for English class in a day that there's there's no way for me to work on it more to make it any better after a certain number of time every day. And so I was aware that if I needed to have something be good, I had to very much track how many days are between now and the target because, you know, eight hour and a half long sessions over eight days is way better than working 15 hours in a row the day before. Like, I won't produce anything remotely as good. And I think it's it's probably related to sleeping between those times, is my guess. That there's something about sleeping and then waking up and working on it anew that is what allows me to make improvements to the, the script that I'm working on. At least that that has been my experience. So that's why if I want to increase the rate of of production of videos, well, the the limit is how much time is spent on a script in a day so I can work very easily on multiple scripts in a day without feeling like there's any collision. As opposed to saying like, oh, I did my one draft of my one script today. Close up shop, right? (laughs) Then then it would be forever before I produced videos if that was the case. Okay, because it's just interesting to me. Like, do you not get... Do you not need like specific motivation to work on one script over another? Like, how do you choose which one you're going to work on? Is that like regimented? Like, I'm going to work for four hours on this one, like two hours on this one? I think in terms of drafts is the way I always think. And in the beginning of a project, drafts are much longer because usually after the collection, pulling things out of Evernote phase, I have a text file that's usually maybe five to 10,000 words long. That's like the starting point for what's eventually going to become a video. And just for comparison, I'm usually aiming for a thousand words in the final script. So I want to cut it down by a fifth or by a tenth, depending on how much I've started with. So going through 10,000 words to complete a full draft the very first time I do it, that can take most of a morning in no small part because it's just 
like random gibberish and sentences and half thought out thoughts. So it's like it takes a long time to go through it once the first time. But every subsequent draft takes a little bit of less less time. So this is this is how things progress. But yeah, I very much think in terms of drafts as opposed to raw hours. I mean, there is a bit of a collision here because I have found that after about an hour and a half, I usually need some kind of break if I'm doing this sort of work. But if uh, if I'm taking like a brand new 10,000 word thing that I'm trying to do the first draft of, I will take a little bit of a break and then go back to it because I really want to get through one draft of that video in that day. So that might take longer. But if I happen to be in a situation where I have two scripts or three scripts that are relatively close to being finished, I can do you know three drafts in a morning because it's much, much faster the closer the draft gets to being finished because I'm making increasingly minor changes as time goes on. So you kind of treat a draft as a unit of time which fluctuates. It's just a thing. It is that the, the item that needs to be completed is the draft. Yeah, I, I think of... Like a draft a day is what needs to happen on the scripts that I am currently working on. and But a draft may greatly vary in the amount of time that it actually takes depending on how, how close to finished it is. So this is also why it's kind of easier for me to, to juggle things because I'm very likely to have one video that is very close to being finished script-wise. And so I can go through that script very fast and then... I have a bunch of time still left over in the morning where I can work on writing. And so I'll, I'll bump back to something that's much less finished and try to work through that. Because again, it, it's like I need these days between drafts. Otherwise, the drafts don't seem to progress. They don't seem to get better if I try to do two or three drafts in a, in a single day. The only exception to this that I have found is doing a script out loud. So say going to my office when nobody is around at night and reading the script out loud, my brain seems to count as a totally different thing. So yes. as, as I get close to the end, I'm technically often doing two drafts on a script because I'm doing writing in the morning and then reading it out loud in the evening. And then I'm, and then I'm very much focused on how does this sound, right? How, how, what is the rhythm of this sentence? Which feels very different from when I'm typing or, or writing by hand, which feels much more like how do I explain this thing? You know, what... what what facts need to go where. It's like two different mental phases that allows me to squeeze out a bit more, a few more drafts per day as I get closer to the end. So you don't actually start speaking the script until it's nearly finished, basically. I I would say I probably can't start speaking the script until halfway through because it's just a mess. Like It's not even remotely in any any state where it could be spoken out loud because I often have big quoted sections that I've pulled from other articles. It's like, oh, okay, here's, here's two paragraphs from some article that I want to be able to try to say in a sentence, but I want to look at the original so I don't forget, like, what was the actual thing that the person was saying? Like, how can I summarize that or how can I simplify that down? So it, it, it often can't be spoken through in any useful way un- until much, much closer to the end. So what app are these big text documents in? I use editorial on my iPad as my primary okay. writing environment. And if okay. I'm on my computer, I will use Byword. But I'm, I'm a big fan of the minimal writing environment. I mean, editorial can do a million things, but it can still just look minimal. And the uh, dark background light text is absolutely vital for me because of a, a small eye problem that I have. So those those are my... Uh, 
Those are my main concerns when I'm selecting text editors. Minimal looking, dark background, light text. Well, obviously, editorial has a bunch of really powerful stuff as well, right? Which must make it even greater. (laughs) Editorial has so many powerful features, none of which I use. (laughs) I use it because I like that shade of dark, dark blue. Hey, whatever works, man. It's not orange. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Do you write outlines or do you just write straight into like paragraphs? You know what outlines are for? Outlines are for school and you make them after the fact. Outlines are for podcasts, my friend. That's what they're okay, for. Okay, but this, but you're not but you're not writing something. You you do outlines for the podcast, and yes, that's totally useful, very good, and you make very in-depth outlines. But I I don't I don't know really anybody who uses outlines who isn't writing something that is book length. Hmm. Right, at book length, it can become a very different thing. Because then the unit of writing is almost like the length of my script, a thousand word or a two thousand word segment. And then you need some superstructure to hold it all together. But but for something that's ultimately going to be a thousand or two thousand words, an outline is just a total, total waste of, of time. It's like way more infrastructure than you really need. I know people that do use them for large pieces. So like when Federico goes to write his like ten thousand word reviews of apps and stuff. Um, he uses uh, mind maps. Mm-hmm. I think he uses an app called iThoughts to do those, mm-hmm. and they can also generate outlines from the mind maps. Yeah, um, but it, I guess it does make sense why you don't do those, considering the pieces are actually quite small, aren't they? Right. Like, a few, like a thousand words. Right. I'm just. I, I just think of you know essays in school where the S, you know the essay is not going to be 10,000 words when you're in high school and you're writing something dumb for English class. But even then, they're like, oh, why don't you write an outline for what you're going to write? It's like, because it's way more work and it's not useful at all. And I think like many, many people I have spoken to, you just write the essay and then you write the outline afterward and hand the outline to your teacher first and go, oh, this is what I'm going to write. But you're actually doing the whole thing backwards because it's not helpful. But if you're writing something 10,000 words, that's the breaking point at which I can see where an outline becomes useful because the only time I have ever sort of kind of used an outline was for the 15-minute Humans Need Not Apply video, which is now four or five times longer than most of the videos I normally make. And that was one where I felt like, oh, this is big enough and there are enough things that I used an omni-outliner and I was actually writing the script in omni-outliner because I could do headings for this is the part where I'm talking about autos. And then this is the part where I talk about creative work. And this is the part where I'm talking about flour mills. And I could rearrange the top level outlines, which would move around big chunks of the script underneath them. And that was the only time I found it really useful because I was having a very hard time figuring out the order that I wanted to talk about things. And at that level, an outline was useful. So with a tool like that, you're able to to do that stuff like, oh, this entire section needs to move. I'll just drag and drop it. That's exactly right. That's where it is useful for me. So I'm not saying outlines are useless under all circumstances, but where most people would have come across them, which is relatively short essays in school, they seem useless because they are useless in that scenario. But it, it, I feel like if you're working on something big enough that you feel like you need an outline, you you know that. But you don't need an outline for the vast majority of, of short pieces. And I know people talk about mind maps. Maybe it's just me, but I have never found a mind map useful. It, they're just 
I have tried many times. I tried with Humans Same. Need Not Apply. I've yep. tried with another big project that I'm working on. And it's like the mind map, it's just useless. If I'm going, I have another big project that I'm kind of working on that I have sort of an outline for. And I tried doing it with mind maps and it's just like nothing. I derive no value from this. I'd much rather have an outline if I'm going to be doing this kind of thing. Mind mapping is one of those things that I look at and be like, I would like to do that. I think that would be really good. That looks useful. And then I start doing it and I'm like, why am I doing this? Why don't I just write an outline? Like yeah. my my brain doesn't seem to click into why it needs to be bubbles like this. Like just write an outline. But I know that there are people that get a lot of value out of it. And, and it must just be a different like way that brains are wired, I guess. I completely agree with you. I have that same experience, which is why I find myself every few years going back to to mind map let me try mind mapping out my next video and it's like why am i doing this oh right because i think the final product looks nice and it looks like something i should be doing but it just i get nothing out of it uh but of course the funny thing is i'm also perfectly aware that to a computer an outline and a mind map are the exact same XML structure behind the scenes. Like they are, they are so fundamentally the same thing. It's just the visual representation of them that's different. But really, a mind map and an outline are are nearly identical in function. So I I think it is the same thing. Like you're saying, it's just a question of something in your brain is wired one way or the other to like indented stuff or random bubbles all over the place. It's like my girlfriend works in advertising, and she's what's called a planner. So like mm-hmm. she comes up with the ideas and like the thinking behind what would eventually become an ad campaign, right? Mm-hmm. So like what is the need of the customer, that kind of thing. And right. she uses massive A3 pads of paper and does mind maps on them. And they're so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And like she uses all colors and it just looks like a, it looks like a brain's work, you know? Right, right. Um, and she obviously derives a lot of value out of them, but I I look at them and I'm like, these look so awesome, but I just can't wrap my head around why I would do it myself over, over just writing a list. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, interesting. Yeah. Like I've said before, it's just, I can do them. I have made big mind maps, but at the end of it, I, it's just like, I derive no value from this. It's it just something about it seems like a total waste of time. And I end up just recreating the whole thing as an outline anyway. Our final sponsor for this week's episode of Cortex is Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. With Igloo, you no longer have to be chained to your desk to get your work done. You're able to manage your task lists while strolling through a meadow on a lovely summer's day. You can share status updates from your phone as you're waiting for your car to be fixed or something like that. Or you can access the latest version of a file from home in the garden whilst having a lovely sip of lemonade on a great day. If you've ever looked at your intranet and thought whoever designed this must truly hate me and everyone I know, well, those days are over. Igloo allows you to make your intranet feel like a place that you actually want to be and a place that you can actually feel productive in. It's surprisingly configurable. You can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your company and thanks to group spaces and role-based access permissions with their easy drag and drop widget editor, you can reorganize the whole platform to fit exactly how 
how your teams work and each individual will be able to access the things that are important to them and it's all going to look the way that they need. Different teams, different departments are going to need different functionality like maybe one team needs collaboration stuff, the other team needs the microblog functionality. You can just add and switch and turn off and turn on what you need where you want. With our mobile lives these days, people are increasingly bringing in their own apps into companies and sensitive documents are getting scattered across different platforms, platforms like Box, Google Drive and Dropbox. Well, with Igloo, you can integrate all of those apps and services into one easy to secure platform. This means that your company's documents are not going to get spread out to places that they shouldn't be. If you know terms like 256-bit encryption, single sign-on and Active Directory integrations, then you'll know just how safe and secure Igloo is. And also with Igloo, you can share your files with your coworkers for you all to collaborate on with their own document preview system. You can also track who has read them with red receipts. This can be super useful for making sure that that critical information has been seen by everyone in your department, keeping everyone on the same page. It is time to break away from the internet you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it out for free for any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Sign up right now at igloosoftware.com slash Cortex and this will also really help support this show. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of Cortex and all of Relay FM. How far can you go down the process of writing a script before you th- can throw it out? Like how oh, far can you go? You know, you know, this makes me sad, Mike. The answer is very far. Uh, I get very far sometimes with scripts and 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 trash them, which is the probably the biggest reason why my schedule with uploading videos is so random. Because I mean, I've gotten better at at the at finding things out in the research phase and killing videos early. Like that, that is a, definitely something I have gotten better at over time. But there's still this thing that can happen with scripts that I'm working on where I get to a very late stage and they die a death of boredom where I look at the script that I have written and I think it is about as good as it can fundamentally be but when I speak it out loud it just it just has no life to it for some reason it's just boring and it's it's very hard to say why a thing is is boring like what makes this different from a script that you think is interesting it's it's not a you can't really point to stuff but that when that happens i feel like i'm not going to animate this thing and put it up that just seems boring uh and so that is that is usually the killer of a video the the latest that can ever possibly happen is death by boredom uh, it doesn't happen too often, but when it does, it is depressing because it usually means there's a huge amount of work that has already gone into the thing, and and for some reason it's like, oh, you know, it's it's dead, Jim. It's not it's not going anywhere. This thing is just lifeless. Is it only you that judges the death by boredom? Well, if you're asking, do I show it to other people and get their assessment on it? The answer is no. I've never shown death by boredom scripts to other people, but. I feel like I have a very good sense of it, and I know that it isn't. It isn't interesting. I, I don't know why, but that that is my feeling about it. I do sometimes show scripts to people for for other reasons, for feedback, you know. Uh, but the death by boredom thing just feels very final, and I always want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that I am bored with the topic. That's a very different feeling um, that can happen sometimes, and I know. I know the difference between I feel bored with this topic 
and I just push through it where it's like, okay, I'm just going to finish this thing and I'll be done, send it off into the world and I never have to think about it again because I have gotten bored with this topic because it's taken too long to produce it. Yep. But the 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 death by boredom is just like the script is lifeless and I can I can recognize that. If if there's any like my my skill is really in iterating scripts and making them better and better and part of that is being able to recognize what is not good and I'm looking at the final product and saying the result of all of my iterations have not made this good enough. It's just, it's just lifeless. So that's, that's, that's the end of it. And I feel like I don't need a second opinion on that because it is irrelevant. Are they like dead, dead, completely dead, like dead as a parrot kind of dead? Or, <laughs> or you can't return them. <laughs> or are, are they like put into like, what is, is that called cryostasis when you freeze something? Yeah, I have a big folder that is called Dead Projects that has a bunch of topics in there. And uh, I end up, when when that kind of thing happens, I do my best to like collect everything that I have about the topic and, and archive it away in a folder. Because I, I like to have it there just in case for some reason it, it's going to be resurrected in the future. Or if the research on that that uh, video is, is useful for another video. But to date, I have never... I've never gone back into that folder and completely resurrected something that I thought died from from death of boredom. But I have taken parts of research from other videos and used them in future things, which is why which is why I don't just delete it and and get rid of it and never see it again. It it goes into a special folder for these kinds of projects to separate them from the folder that contains all of my successfully completed projects, which is a much happier folder. I like that you keep them in a little folder, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you like that, Mike? It's like, yeah. Every time you drop it in there, there should be a little sound effect, like a little <laughs> ding or something. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many items in that folder. I mean, it's it's funny to think my YouTube career has has spanned over several years now, but my total number of videos is not an enormous number. But yes, I do have a special folder for all of them. Do you actually enjoy writing? Because <laughs> um, I hate it. Right? <laughs> so... Uh-huh. I, like many people that I know, uh, well, many people I know have successful blogs or they have blogs that they keep updated frequently whilst doing other projects, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I know people that make their living from their blogs and I know some people that like they make money from podcasting and they have a blog on the side as just another outlet. Mm -hmm. I tried blogging for many years uh, before I came to podcasting and even since I've always, every now and then I get the idea of starting a blog again. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, like one of the reasons that I do this speaking stuff Mm -hmm. is because I I hate the writing process. So I've been working on on an article for a website over the last couple of weeks, um, so a, a, a site that I that I read and like called I More have asked me to to do a little article for them, and it's been like torture. It's just been so difficult for me. Like I think I've written the article four times, like, mm-hmm. and they've all been completely different. Like it's not like they're drafts because each of those have had drafts, mm-hmm. and it's just I find the whole process to be so difficult because. 
I agonize over every word. Now, I know that this stuff isn't necessarily getting published, but so like people aren't reading it, but you're still going to do the same kind of idea because you agonize over it in a different way because of how it sounds. Mm -hmm. But I just find the process of writing to be so difficult and like and tedious for me. Um, and then every time I try and do it, like every now and then I get like a great idea for for something and I'll write something and it goes really well but they're the only times that it ever goes really well it's like I have this real clear idea and mm-hmm. I just couldn't imagine writing things on a on a very frequent basis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's it's in some ways I'm in a similar situation because I always feel like I should write more for my website like occasionally I post articles up there about something that I've I've written but it's not very often and i have a bunch of spreadsheets that tell me the return on investment is terrible right because yep. if i publish something on my website it, it, you know it can take almost not quite but almost as much time as writing a script for a video but it earns me nothing no money right <laughs> nothing right not you know just 0 dollars uh, because I don't, I don't have Google Ads on my website. I, you know, I don't have at this time any sponsors on on the website. <laughs> so it is very literally zero money, which is why the few things that I have written as articles, articles on my websites are biased toward. I'm really irritated about something, and I almost feel like I can't not write this article because I'm angry. It's it, like I don't even want to write this thing, but I'm just kind of angry. But Nonetheless, I, like you, I feel like I should write more for my website. I should write more articles, but but I don't. I don't because it's just, it's so time-consuming. And when you're asking straight up, like, do I like writing? I think the best way to say is that in uh, the book that I'm, I'm always recommending to people graduating from college, So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport, he talks in there about craft skills about the like the kinds of skills that you can think of as craft work and I think in my life writing falls into that category because it feels when I'm working on a script that this is very very different kind of work from anything else that I do it it just feels different from even something like the animating which is also creative work in a way where I have to come up with what's going to be on the screen but the writing feels like something that, with practice, over time, I have gotten better at in, in various ways. And it's not enjoyable, but there is a certain kind of satisfaction that comes from doing it. And maybe the closest comparison that I can make is going to the gym. I know people who enjoy going to the gym, and those are lucky crazy people yeah but for me i do not enjoy going to the gym i do not find it a pleasurable experience when i'm there but there's a certain satisfaction in the progress that you can make with lifting weights you know seeing the little line go up or like you know being able to put the next heavier weight on the bar there's a kind of satisfaction in that that is different from lots of other things in life and also much like writing sometimes the best feeling is boy, I went to the gym. 
several hours ago. And don't I feel awesome? And writing can be the same way. It's like, boy, I had an amazing writing session this morning, and I feel great all day when things go really well with the writing. Even though in the moment, it's not like, oh boy, isn't this absolutely an amazing experience? So that's why I would I would not go so far as to say that like I dislike writing. It's just, it feels like it falls into a very, very different category in my life that is not like any other kind of work that I do. There is a satisfaction in it, and there's a kind of improvement in it. You know, seeing a script go from just nonsense into a thing that is finished and then eventually part of a video that, you know, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people see, there's a satisfaction in that. But, you know, I wouldn't for fun sit down and write you know that that would uh, that would not be my experience, and I have to say I've, I got a lot of relief in. I, I read a bunch of books about writing, and you know from real authors, people who write books, which is just a, a, a Mount Everest of a task I can't ever imagine doing. But the consensus seems to be from professional writers a similar story of boy, they sure like having written. They're not so sure they like ever actually the moment of writing. One final thing that just relates to that is. One of my favorite books on writing is Stephen King's On Writing, and I I really recommend that. The book is much more enjoyable if you have read a lot of Stephen King's work, but I still think there is value to be derived from it, even if you haven't. But in that book, he talks about there are four different levels of writers. You have terrible writers, which is the vast majority of the population. You have the exceptional individual writers, people like Hunter S. Thompson, who are just singular writers. And then in the middle, you have two categories, which are competent writers and good writers. And Stephen King's opinion is that you can't do anything about the extremes. Someone who's just a terrible writer, there's very little you can do to even turn them into a competent writer. And then someone like Hunter S. Thompson not to say that his writing wasn't work, but he's almost born the way that he is. Like he's just so different and so natural. That's just his skill innately. But that in the middle, you have these two categories and that you can take someone who is a competent writer and if they're willing to put in enough time and practice with it, they can become a good writer. And I really feel like this has been my path over the past several years is someone who was a competent writer who through repeated practice and through this constant iteration on a script is able to take competent writing and turn it into something that is good, right? Something that is a script that is enjoyable for people to hear spoken aloud. And so I I, I really think that there is something to that description that with enough practice competent writers can turn into good writers and that's that's part of the part of the satisfaction of the job going back to your gym thing yeah it is kind of like a muscle yeah in some sense i think it is it's it's a little bit frustrating because unlike a muscle you know if you if you if you start to bench press uh, a certain amount of weight you can be pretty confident that the next time you go into the gym you'll also be able to bench press that amount of weight or maybe more but with writing with writing there's always this roll of the dice that does happen to everybody who ever does this of just crap days it would be like if you went to the gym and you roll the dice you know and if you roll snake eyes 
you're not going to be able to lift the bar, you know, even though the day before you lifted 150 pounds. That's what writing can be frustrating like, is it has a much more jagged upward curve that you can still just have terrible, terrible days, even if you've been doing it for a long time. Whereas the gym is a much, it's a much smoother line as long as you can keep going. Uh, but writing is is not quite the same. So to round out today, I have a couple of Ask Gray questions. Um, okay. Which are semi-related because you mentioned earlier on that your iPad is your primary working device, is your primary writing device. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a couple of questions about uh, kind of para- iPad paraphernalia, basically. Um, Daniel mm-hmm. wanted to know if you use any kind of cover on your iPad. Yeah, I just use the regular smart cover that uh, Apple makes. I like that too. I, I've always used smart covers. I, I said this recently. Like, I feel like the smart cover is basically part of the iPad. Like, they are together. Yeah, it's pretty good. Although I will say, with the iPad Air two, I'm aware that that iPad is so light that the cover is now becoming a non-trivial amount of the total weight. And so I often find that I will take off the cover of the iPad Air 2 in a way that I never do with any of my other iPads. Because it just it just makes it feel very different if you're holding it in the hands, just because it's so crazy light. So I must be like, boy, I hope uh, with the next round of uh, smart covers that Apple's actually looking into making their covers thinner and lighter, much more than making the devices thinner and lighter. And Carlos wanted to know what iPad keyboard you use. Uh, I actually, I have a couple from Logitech that I can never quite decide which ones I like better. I, I'll have to, I, I don't know the brand names off the top of my head. I, I'll have to send them to you for the show notes. But Logitech makes two iPad keyboards, both of which I like. Uh, one of which is, uh, I think Federico Vitici uses the same one. It's one that has like a blue cover that, that comes with it. Uh, it's relatively old as far as Logitech goes. And uh, the other one has like a light up keyboard, which is very nice, but I can never quite decide which of those two I like better. So um, I tend to leave the lighter one in my go bag with my on the go iPad and the heavier one uh, is like in my office with my other iPad. But I I like both of them. It's very hard to find a, a good keyboard for the iPad, but I think Logitech makes pretty good ones. So next time we talk, will you be in London? Maybe? Uh... This show is just so frequent, Mike. It, it feels like, do we have to record tomorrow? I don't. It, we're always doing the show from my perspective. <laughs> even though even though I've just had a week off, it feels like, God, I could use another week off. Cortex is always happening somewhere. It does feel like Cortex is always happening. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still just so thrown with my whole schedule. I've got to, I feel like I have to record. Listen, before we record the next Cortex, I have to record the next Hello Internet. I don't know when that's going to happen. Soon, hopefully. Uh, I think think I should be in London, which means you will now have something like four podcasts in a row on which I am very jet lagged. So your timing for this 10 episode run was terrible. Hey. <laughs> it was over over a huge vacation. This didn't just happen to you. Okay. Like we agreed on this. I feel like it did just happen. <laughs> we did agree. We did agree. But it was terrible timing. I'm still going to take the opinion that this feels like it just happened to me. Okay. I'm just minding my own business, and Mike Hurley bullied me into a podcast. That's my story, and that's what I'm sticking with. 